Before we begin today's episode, take your own narrative there and enter our grim short story competition. Go to danmurphys.com.au and enter your short story as a review of a product, then tweet us your entry at beyondzeropod or email it to us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Michael and I will be reading out the 10 shortlisted entries and the winner will receive a signed copy of Grimish. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 11 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Jasper Ford. Jasper is the best-selling author of the Thursday Next series, the Nursery Crime series, and most recently The Constant Rabbit, and the final book in the Last Dragon Slayer series, The Great Troll War. Thanks for joining me, Jasper. My pleasure. Good to be here. How is life in beautiful Wales? Life is uh, very nice in beautiful Wales. Uh, yeah, as, as I was saying earlier, it's the fog harvest. It'll be the annual fog harvest very soon. And um, all the schools break up and all the children come out and help. It's, it's, it's great fun. It really is good fun. We just grab, we get big, our big nets, our big nets, and we hook the fog and we bring it in and we bottle it for export. So um, it's going to be very exciting. It looks like a good harvest this year. Very good. When I pick up my fog this year, I'll know where it came from. I made in Wales. <laughs> you started work in the film industry uh, behind the camera and you worked on some really big movies like Goldeneye and Entrapment. What was the catalyst for you that pulled you into expressing yourself on the page? Uh, yeah, this was a weird one. Um, uh, so I, I, I was utterly, uh, academically speaking, uh, completely not a failure um i i mean the best i i got a a grade um d in art a level that was it and i didn't do well with gcse's didn't like school um you know didn't want to go to university or college or anything or rather couldn't um so i i was attracted always to story always always to story so the place i decided to head was where my childish mind saw story you know, an attainable place, a place where I could work in story that I could actually do. So I headed towards the movie industry. So that's, you know, I started that age of, I think I was 20 when I began in the film industry. Um, but I was, uh, when I was about um, sort of 27, um, uh, and, you know, you get into film industry because you want to make your own movies. And in those days, it was actually quite hard. You know, you actually have to make, you know, make them on film. You know, it's, it's not like it is today. Um, and I was sort of writing these scripts and then, you know, they're pretty rubbish. And someone said, look, um, I heard that um, Graham Greene for The Third Man, right, the movie The Third Man, he wrote a book which was basically a treatment for the script that then became The Third Man. Right. And this is a great idea, because if you want to get all the all the ideas and characters and the atmosphere and the pace and the subtle level of humour, then write a treatment, a long, long treatment, like, you know, 7,000 word treatment. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. You know, I've got these great ideas for uh, for scripts, movies, as I thought, you know. Um, why don't I just write a short story about one of them, you know, to get it all in place? So that's what I started doing. And, and up until now, you know, writing or being a writer was not on my radar this was something that clever people did this this wasn't for the likes of me who were useless at school and you know could barely string you know sentences together on a page and you know my handwriting is terrible still is spelling awful 
Um, and I started doing this and it was one of those little kind of, um, I don't know, sort of epiphanic moments, if you like, where you go, this is, this is quite fun, actually, because I, I don't need a budget. You know, if I don't need any producer telling me I can't have 17 camels, you know, in Trafalgar Square, because as a writer, you can, you can do anything, you can make anything happen. There is no limit you know, limit is your is your, your imagination. But also I had this sort of feeling that the words were kind of falling together in the right place. And it was kind of, I thought, working. And and that was basically how it started. And I, I wrote for, I think, another 13 years. I didn't, I didn't get published for another 13 years, wrote six and a half novels. And I was whatever it was, 39 when I got published. Um, and that was and that was it. I mean, I never made any movies. I never thought I wanted to. I just suddenly sort of fell in love with the the written word and then just went on this long kind of self-taught, you know, how do you become a writer sitting in front of a keyboard kind of way of doing it, which which kind of sort of kind of makes you sort of realize why my my books are a bit sort of, you know, a bit sort of sporadic and out there and bizarre ideas and everything squunged into one. That's just me self-teaching myself to write books in the Jasper Ford way that's my origin story kind of not as good as Wolverine but it's certainly mine that's a very good origin story I think <laughs> you've brought a lot of film techniques to the books you write you do location scouting you write word inventories on your website and The Last Dragon Slayer was adapted for film so could you tell us a bit more about that process yeah, this was, uh, yeah, I kind of tend to think, uh, I kind of imagine the scenes, you know, when I'm writing, I imagine the scenes, I imagine the people talking. And I obviously, I, sometimes I like mouth words to myself, or I talk to myself, the kind of things people would say. And then I write down basically what I'm seeing, that, that's how I sort of kind of do it, and then try and make the words, you know, fit together nicely and do them, you know, do the most amount of description with the least amount of of words you know that's how it works just keep the throughput going into people's heads you know keep high sort of high throughput um so so I, I think movies are always there they were my first love and I did them for 20 years and I just you know I didn't stop I was busy the whole time for that and so location scouts for me is kind of important not only from the fact that I like to go and see what I'm actually writing about but also you get these wonderful ideas when you're there because that's what happens when you go on on movie movie location scouts you know you arrive there and you if you're a, ca a camera a camera person a cinematographer you'll suddenly go ah right hang on you know that that huge hole in the roof you know we can actually put a lamp above there and have it pointing straight down and you discuss that with the director and they go wow yeah we could like let's do this at night and then that's going to be really good and all of a sudden the location then adds to the story and what you're trying to say in, in a big kind of way. So when I go on off on scouts, I'm looking at things and I'm going, okay, that could be someone's house or this could be this, or there's a castle there, or there's a round tower that I can use. And all of a sudden my book changes um, to, to, to kind of what I see. And it's, it's, if you like, it's a sort of collaborative pro pro project between me and the real world and, and how I observe it. Plus, it's good to get out, actually, because we writers do, you know, just sit in front of our keyboards a little too much, perhaps. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were asking about the film, weren't you? That's right, last time. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was actually 2016. So, you know, a long time in the past, you know, um, or back in the day, as my, uh, my daughters, who are very young, both teenagers, they go back in the day, and it's like, yeah, back in the day for you, it's like, 
he's like, yeah, 2017. <laughs> Back in the days, like 1973 for me. Um, yeah, that was it was it was pretty good. It was quite interesting. You know, they wanted to make a movie and then they that didn't happen. And then Sky said they might be interested. And it, it did pretty well um, on Sky Christmas 2016. I think it was. Um, I didn't have much to do with it. I must say the, they weren't really in a sort of collaborative mood with the author. And why should they really, to be honest? Um, and they went and did what they did. And I was it was OK, but. I think, I, as always, we do have our little whinges, I suppose. But, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. And that's the thing. And you have two choices when someone's buying a property to make a, a movie uh, out of. And they're yes or no. And once they've got it, it's 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 theirs and they can do what, whatever they want with it. And, you know, no amount of whinging will... Um, well, I mean, you can't give the you can't give the kitchen back, you know, and, and have the rights returned. It doesn't work that way. You know, it only goes in one way. Um, so it, the the lead, I, I can't recall her name now. She was marvellous. And uh, the uh, Tiger Prawns, a uh, couple of really good young, uh, young uh, actors, actually. Um, they were tremendous. But I felt there were maybe some bits and pieces they left out that perhaps would have been fun left in. But there you go. OK. Would you return to the world of film at some point? Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a thing, I'm a little along in the tooth now and I've been away from the industry for, for a long, long time. If somebody said, you know, you know, would, would be interested in doing this and do you want to come on board and collaborate on the script or something like that, uh, then I'd, I'd be open to kind of offers. But I'm, I'm an author now. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm an author. And authoring does take up huge amounts of time. You know, I mean, I, I wish I could write books as quick as people could read them, but um, unfortunately, you know, one can't. Uh, so no, that's why. So I, I don't think so. No. I was lucky enough to be introduced to the Air Affair at university. We did this course oh. where we did a comparative study on Jane Eyre and your book, and it made oh. both books so enjoyable. And uh, could you tell us about how you came to, I guess, how you came to write that book in particular? Uh, yeah, I mean, this was this is an int it's an interesting one. I mean, a quick preamble. It was actually th the third book I wrote. The first one was the Humpty Dumpty procedural, followed by the uh, the retelling of the, the three bears, the fourth bear, the fourth bear. I couldn't get those published anywhere, and um, and they were kind of what I regard as as fairly straight. You know, they were just police procedurals with nursery nursery rhyme characters. You know, what's odd about that? And you know, who wouldn't want to know? the real story behind Humpty Dumpty and the three bears. And as it turned, nobody turned out, nobody wanted to read them. So that was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a sort of turning point for me because I'd written these two books. I thought they were okay. Um, they, they weren't, they needed to be rewritten, to be honest. I think people probably liked the ideas, but they just weren't up to, weren't up to scratch yet. You know, I was still learning to be a writer. Um, and for me, it was quite interesting because it's uh, you have you have a choice then as an author because I had a day job in the movie industry and it was like well I just I just concentrate on you know being in the movies uh, I could um, stop writing entirely because clearly this isn't working I've been doing it for like eight years now and or number three you could actually start writing something you know look at the bestseller list and write something similar you know try and be a the Swindon John Grisham or something like that you know or the you know, the great Bedouin Stephen King, you know, something something hideous uh, like that. Not that Stephen King is hideous, I mean, to be a copy like that. 
and and that's kind of that's not a good advice you know because you got to you got to do your own thing and you know dance your own steps and you got to be yourself when you're writing because it shows it really does um but the other alternative was um well listen if i'm not going to be if i'm not going to be published you know it doesn't matter what i write i mean it really doesn't not anymore i can just like just let myself go and i can write any old you know crap i want to and it doesn't matter so the next idea i was kind of had that was on the idea list was uh the the idea that jane eyre is kidnapped out of jane eyre and uh, every everybody's copies are missing and how do we get it back um and that's where i started on this book that i would not expect to get published and because of that i put everything in it and uh people say don't cross genre well they used to in those days they don't anymore um so so I started off with this basic idea about um, uh, Jane Eyre being kidnapped and then I needed someone to, to it was a police procedure of some sort obviously there was a baddie there was a goodie uh, I chose Thursday next I wanted a female protagonist because I had you know male protagonist the last two um, I decided to do it first person because I've been third person I'd do something a bit different and and as the book went on I just added more and more and there was this sort of alt uh alt universe the sort of idea alternatives and and then a, the time travel um but not time travel as we know it a kind of different kind of time travel where you can have paradoxes and that's fine and and then it just it just sort of spread and darkened and more and more was added to it as I as I as I rewrote it and added more and then this idea of of kind of having fun or playing fast and loose with the classics or being reverently irreverent, if you like, with the classics is something that sort of deeply appealed to me. Um, I think probably from the the Monty Python sketch where they did uh, Wuthering Heights with um, semaphore flags and, and Julius Caesar by Aldis lamp, you know, by signal lamp, you know, click, 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 uh, two brutes. Uh, I kind of like that idea, you know, of taking the classics and, you know, just mucking around with them. Um, but it's a great book, you know, uh, it really is a good book, Jane Eyre, so I didn't want to mess around with it too much, but I thought I could have fun with it. And anyway, I wrote this, kind of not expecting it to be published, and uh, I wrote another book and a half after this, and I was trying to get Last Dragon Slayer published at the time, and someone said, eh, not sure, but it's a bit kind of Harry Potter Me Too, and it's like, it's not. Um, but do you have anything else? And I thought, well, what am I going to show them? You know, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. And I gave them the air affair. And uh, and they went, whoa, OK, this is completely different. Yeah, um, it's very strange, very unusual. And it's kind of tooth around about this is 1999, 2000. And we were just post Ladlit, Chicklet. And this was something very different for a big publisher to, to, to put them, their weight behind. And they liked it. And everyone who read it, you know, the, the publishers liked it. So they went, absolutely, we'll go for it. So there's something that, you know, to be to learn, really, if you're a writer or if you in any walk of sort of, you know, creative endeavor is just let yourself go. You know, just just do what you want to do. You know, dance your own steps like, you know, like in, you know, Strictly Ballroom. Just do your own thing and don't worry about the consequences and just make it your own. And that's what I did. And it sort of it got me published. It sent me off. It's still selling even today. So, um, but I'm glad you studied it along with Jane. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> we had some creative lecturers at the time and it was so well worth yeah. it. And it's such a fun read. Yeah. Got car chases and all oh, sorts good. of things in good. there. So that's Yeah, really exactly. I mean, what's, you know, someone hanging out of an airplane with a machine gun, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> and, and then mixing, mixing, you know, Jane Eyre with werewolves and car chases, you know, why not? You know, why yeah. not? So, yeah, good. Well, I'm glad you liked it.
<laughs> Definitely, I sure did. Uh, one of the things I love about your books in general um, is the fun you have, all the wordplay, all the names, the ads you you put in there. Have you got a favourite character name or a bit of wordplay that you've put in? Because I've got a few, I think. Um, oh, I don't know. There was... Um... Don't no, I there was the had had. I think I was trying to put all the had hads together and the that that's together. Um, I quite like the wordplay with um things like the footnote of phones, and uh, I think um when when Thursday next the protagonist she could travel inside books and she finds herself in the book world. Um, people there speak in courier bold, which you can't understand, but it's a traditional traditional language of the book world, which I kind of like. Um, book operating systems always good fun, I suppose. Um, there was some explosive device uh, that they were designing, which was um, Das Kapital and Mein Kampf, which were <laughs> separated by a sheet of aluminium. And you, you pull out the al aluminium and the opposing ideologies uh, generate this huge amounts of power that eventually explode and detonate. And, and I think little jokes like that, kind of silly little in-jokes that while kind of literary, are also kind of everyman kind of jokes, a bit, you know, Monty Python-esque. And, and even if you don't kind of, you know, you don't have to read Das Kapital and Mein Kampf to know how that joke works. Because although there's a kind of sniggering in the back of English class feel about it, I wanted, I wanted to kind of make it, you know, attainable to someone who didn't study English or hasn't studied the classics, but sort of vaguely knows what the classics are about. So I kind of enjoyed that. Um, but favourite favorite characters, I don't know, I'm quite a soft spot for Melanie Bradshaw, who's a gorilla. Uh, married, married to Commander Bradshaw, she's kind of cool in a little cocoa shell dress, worrying about her, you know, her, her suit issues. Um, she's very sweet. I mean, there's a lot of characters. There's the character Jenny, who's one of Thursday's daughters or, or isn't. I think she was a pretty cool character. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's like children. You, you don't have any favourites. You, you, you just love them all, you know. I think one of my favourite yeah, pieces of wordplay um, is from your nursery crime series. And I think I'd, I'd taken that book to America with me and just thinking about the right to arm bears was really... Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was quite that, a, that is a nice, nice little piece of, that, yeah. That, that does work, doesn't it? The right to arm bears. <laughs> My um, theory was, like, I guess this is the way I think, but sometimes when I have an idea, it'll usually be like one little pinpoint of an idea and then I expand on it. Mm. But when I was reading that book, I was like, maybe Jasper's just taken, you know, that idea, the right to arm bears and just expanded it into a whole universe. Actually, actually, it's interesting you say that because I, I work with this concept called the, um, uh, the narrative dare, right? So all my books are based on a narrative dare. So it's Jane Eyre's been kidnapped. Someone has to get her back. Uh, Humpty Dumpty was murdered. Who was responsible? Um, I early riser, writer, writer, a, uh, a thriller in a world in which humans have always hibernated. Um, you know, you have all these kind of narrative dares and it's basically, you know, discuss. But the one with the, the fourth bear was actually to explain the porridge, uh, the porridge temperature differential. Because, you know, if you recall daddy bear too hot, mummy bear too cold, baby bear just right. And you go, well, that's not possible from a thermodynamic point of view. <laughs> there had to be a fourth bear involved somewhere in this. And was that somehow related to mummy bear and daddy bear sleeping in separate beds? which always confused me because that was clearly some marital discord within the bear <laughs> family unit that had to be looked at. And, and once you, once you start, once your brain starts unpicking or unpacking, if you like, these kind of ideas uh, and, and, and people go, yeah, yeah. What is that? What is that with the porridge? 
And yeah, and it, and basically the fourth bear is explaining away how the porridge could have been different temperatures when they were pulled at the same time. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, there was a fourth bear. And by the time I kind of explain it, I'm about three quarters of the way through the book. But of course, there's so much else to explain that I just carry on. But that that is what the book is about. It's explaining the porridge temperatures, temperature differential. <laughs> were, were there any of your ideas or names that got cut by editors because they're a bit too risque? Uh, I don't think so. No, I mean, quite often, you know, when you're writing, you kind of self self censor because you 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 understand what what you who you're writing for and children may be reading it. And, you know, and it's like keeping swear words to a minimum and things like that. And it's it's yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there were any puns too bad that that I didn't actually. Uh, I think there was someone who, who I call I called racy novel. I called the the area of um, the book world, you know, which was basically, you know, pornographic. I called it racy novel because mm. I, I just I think it's a more charming way of saying it. You know, racy novel is it's kind of naughty, but not, you know, not exploitative. Um, and there was a character in that called um, Speedy Muffler, um, who was a great name for someone who works in racing novel. And I think their assistant was called Jiffy Lube, um, which is quite nice. Jiffy Lube, I think that's quite nice. But they're both they're both actually they're like quick fit Euro in the states. You know, they're like um, yeah, Jiffy Lube is you go in there and you get your car. You know, the old changed. Um, and Speedy Muffler, which is a great name, a great name for a character. And that's um, yeah, it's just you, you get a new exhaust on your car. But they um, they ended up in racy novel, um, and uh, but I don't think that's risque, not in the least. No, not in the least. no. <laughs> um, I guess with the publishing industry, and you know, obviously know a lot more about it than than I do. But can you explain to us the pressure of having deadlines and how that affects your ability to create the story that you want? Um. Yeah, it's uh, deadlines are fine. Um, deadlines are good things to work to, actually. Um, it's, I think it's easier to hit a deadline if um, if you, you have a, a financial interest in hitting the deadline. Like you know, you know, I'm I I sell okay, but I'm not you know a massive massive seller. You know, I don't have literally you know trillions of dollars sitting in my spare room in cash you know I don't I'm not that kind of author so so that kind of can actually focus the mind a lot more than perhaps say um you know a creative creative sort of input um but I did I did have a, a bit of problem uh, several years back trying trying to get um early riser and it took three years when it should have taken actually a year and that was actually you know a real big problem but I think the thing about deadlines is they're fine if you're in a good place. When writing is all about finding yourself in the right place, in the good place, in the right headspace, and everything around you being in a sort of stable orbit, you know, and you have all of us, you know, because we're human, we have things marching around us. And if they're in stable orbits, then you can deal with them because, you know, if, even if you've got, you know, some dodgy friend who needs looking after, you know, or something like a needy friend or a needy spaniel or anything like that, as long as they're in a in a sort of fairly stable orbit, then you know what to do. But when things start going in unstable orbits and you kind of don't know what's going on, and once you have like one or two, three, or even five things in an unstable orbit, then that takes you out of your headspace. So quite often, actually, writing is is not about you know picking up a keyboard and a screen and saying right, let's go for it. It's it's about putting yourself in your or your life or your affairs in a position in which you can just 
calm and relax and switch off and just let it flow and let it come out and and have fun with it so you know that would be my top tip for writing um but often that's not the case and that can be very frustrating but it's like you know just try and try and make your your orbits around you stable um i can't remember your question was that kind of your question no, oh, publishing that's... that's right deadlines so yeah i mean deadlines are good i mean nowadays i'm you know, um, I don't sell well uh, as well now as I used to. You know, 2011 was a very good year for me, but <laughs> no longer. Um, so a, a book a year is probably actually quite a good thing for me to do, to stay current and to keep on having something coming out and keeping book sales going. So I've been doing a book a year for the last, what is it now, three years, is it? And uh, I hope to finish this one this year. And it just keeps things ticking over nicely, keeps me busy, keeps me remembering that I'm an author. Um, because I've got little publishing things happening um, and it's it's fun it's much more fun to actually move on with books I think rather than actually spending years on them early riser that I mentioned earlier you know usually I can write a book in 100 days 120 days spread over six months uh, early riser took me like 400 days spread over three years uh, it's not four times as good you know it's only one times as good which is the same as it i <laughs> If, if I'd taken 120 days in a good headspace with stable orbits, it probably would have come out the same or maybe even slightly better. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's a problem. Uh, but writer's block, you know, until it hits you, uh, it's, uh, it's something that you think, you know, it's just silly and just writers being poncy and, you know, trying to pretend they're... Um, Oh, you know, this sort of creative, oh, my creative juices aren't, you know, aren't, um, aren't flowing. I must go to, you know, I don't know, go to Bali or something. Um, but um, no, it's true. You know, creative, creative things is a weird, strange beast. And if things aren't working, then it's just ain't going to work. You know, ain't going to work. But, but I'm OK now. Hmm. Do you write every day? Stable. Yeah, I have to. Yeah, to get that um, to get that 100, 100 words, uh, 100, 100 days for a book, I pretty much have to write every day, not not just from a, a sort of a, a speedy point of view, but also keeping it in your head because I don't have any notes. So I have to literally boot up my head um, with all the facts and pace and atmosphere and um, characters and subplots. They all have to kind of be in my head. Uh, to be able to juggle with them and put them down on the page. And once you haven't written for three or four days, it's all gone out and you have to start again. So quite often when I'm sort of cantering towards the finish, when I'm at day 98 and I can see the, you know, those wonderful goalposts in sight, you know, the fog has cleared and I can see the goalposts, you know, and I, I may I may do 22 days straight, work every single day and, you know, work really long days and it's all in your head and you're getting it all finished and, you know, everything is sort of fitting all together in a nice kind of elegant little fashion, like a sort of, you know, nice, like a nice little jigsaw where they just slot into place nicely. Um, so yeah, I work quite hard on it then, but yeah, you do, you do pretty much have to work on it most days, but this is just me. Some writers can just, they've already got it in their heads and they can just think about it for six months and then take three weeks to write it. But you know, they're superhuman. Uh, I wish I could do that. I can't. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jasper Ford. Applications are now open for the Curtin University Northern Territory Advanced Acronym Course for 2022. Enroll today. 
We're back on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Jasper Ford. All right, let's move on to The Constant Rabbit. And that's, uh, I okay. guess, your most recent book for adults. Um, yep. Can you give us a bit of a, the, I guess, the setup of that book? Uh, the setup of the book, uh, well, basically, it's uh, in 1963, 18 rabbits uh, were were mysteriously and inexplicably anthropomorphized into sort of human rabbit creatures who are six foot tall, can walk, talk, have reason, um, intellect, like to drive cars, you know, go to cinema, theatre, stuff like that. And uh, they're, they're human, but they're also rabbit. They're, there's this funny sort of, you know, they've taken their part of what they are is us, but a lot of what they are is rabbit. And they arrived in 1963 and it was, wow, that's fantastic. You know, tell us all about yourselves. You know, what do you do? What do you like to eat? You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and everyone's very excited. However, it's now 2022. And well, rabbits are not that welcome in the UK anymore. There are 1.2 million of them. They live in colonies with their uh, movements kind of regulated by the Rabbit Compliance Task Force. The, the government of the day is the uh, United Kingdom Anti-Rabbit Party, uh, known as UCARP, um, who have got to power on an anti-rabbit ticket. Um, and they're going to move the 1.2 million rabbits to a mega warren in Wales, rehoming, it's called the rehoming, uh, where they'll be much happier and they can be protected uh, from, you know, um, sort of... Um, uh, hominid supremacist groups you know so they're there for their own protection clearly and and there'll be some manufacturing facilities so while they're there enjoying the bounteous fruits of the Welsh hills they'll be able to build some things for their um, uh, human overseers I mean the uh, the people who run uh, the mega war and and as you as you can imagine rabbits are not stupid and they know that um, when you know when this sort of thing humans have a little bit of form when it comes to this kind of stuff and, and it's really about my protagonist, Peter Knox. He lives in a little village in the middle of little England uh, called Much Hemlock in Herefordshire. And uh, some rabbit, a rabbit family of rabbits move in next door. Um, they they're, they're allowed to, these are a family of rabbits to are allowed to live outside the colonies. And uh, the, the village want them out because they breed, you know, and they burrow. And unfortunately, it's sort of a little bit awkward because it, he went to university with Connie Rabbit, Mrs. Rabbit, and they have a kind of little bit of a thing for each other still. And it's really about the fur flying, uh, literally and metaphorically, and what happens with um, Peter as he sort of gets to know the rabbit better and gets to know himself and his species better. And it's not all good, obviously. Um, no. That's is that enough of a setup to make Definitely. people buy buy my book now? <laughs> Intriguing, maybe perhaps. Well, I think in a way this feels like your most overtly political book. Um, you got references, I think, to like Brexit and people like mm -hmm. Nigel Farage and and UKIP is UKIP, I suppose. And the, and the rabbits are just such a good stand-in for, I guess, any oppressed group. Yeah, I mean, they they, they make such the the perfect demonized other. I mean, I could write this book with maybe six other animal species, but none of them, sheep, goat, cow, cattle, chicken, uh, none of them would have the, you know, the, the strength that rabbits do. Uh, because I think they, you know, as, and this is an allegorical novel, clearly, but I think the relationship that humans have with rabbits um, is a very confused relationship. It's a very confused relationship because we have a confused relationship with the other animals on our planet 
um, but we also have a very confused relationship with ourselves and other groups, not, you know, not like us, our group. So the, the rabbits do, do make a very good sort of proxy demonized other um, and, and everything can be sort of um, squunged into that in the same way that, you know, rabbits treat, uh, humans treat rabbits. Um, you can actually find parallels uh, in the way that, um, you know, humans treat humans, you know, it's, it, and even in the sort of basic things like um, the way in which, the way uh, language can be used. Uh, because when rabbits are um, pet rabbits, they, they're cute and they're fluffy and they're cuddly and you have all these kind of names for them. And, and if you were to hurt a, um, a domestic rabbit, you know, that belonged to your seven-year-old daughter, you know, it'd be just a hideous, a heinous crime. And you'd quite likely and, and very properly be up in front of the magistrate, you know, for causing cruelty. However, if you are not well predisposed towards rabbits and they are not not like those cute rabbits if they are like the other rabbits the dangerous rabbits they are vermin and they are a plague and they are pest and you can destroy them in any manner you wish i mean really literally you think of the most unpleasant way you can kill an animal humans have done it to rabbits in the same way that humans have done it to humans so so as a proxy human the rabbit is just the most perfect beautiful example and a lot of the stuff that I was writing, I mean, it was always going to be rabbits. So there was no question of it being something else. Um, all the stuff was I, I was writing from this sort of um, allegorical point of view kind of drops in your lap. You know, um, I wanted to have divisions with even within rabbits. Right. So there's uh, three type of rabbits. There's pet stock, wild stock and lab stock, which are, you know, laboratory pet and wild. And they have a kind of slightly, you know, uh, off kilter relationship with each other. And I think that was important, but what is kind of, you know, slightly under the radar there, are they are divisions created by humans, not divisions created by rabbits, you know, to rabbits, every rabbit would be a rabbit. Um, and it's things like that, that I, I, I suddenly realized that, yeah, this is great fun. And there's a lot of stuff going on under the radar. Um, a bit, I mean, all my books have been a bit political, but yeah, as you say, this is the most overtly political one. I kind of kind of refer to it as my when people ask me, you know, what are you writing? And I'm doing, well, it's, it's about anthropomorphized rabbits. And it's my it's basically my Brexit anger book, you know, <laughs> um, and that was it. And, and coming to terms about, you know, you know, because when I was brought up as a kid, you know, there was no better thing than to be born British. You know, essentially, that's that's what you get told, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, and we won the war you know, single-handed, you know, no one else did it, it was all us, and which is, you know, nonsense, as, as we all know now, um, and that sense of exceptionalism, you know, starts to tarnish, you know, once you read a bit of history, um, and I think it was, you know, Peter's journey has certainly, you know, been a journey that I've, I've had over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, so, um, yeah, yeah, I like it. I, it's it's a book I think I'm you know most most proud of. Perhaps if I, if I can if you if you can be proud of something in in a good way. I mean, one of the most savage characters I think in the book is is the uh, the wolf who comes along and and threatens Connie and wants to tear her up in the middle of the, mm. the book. oh the fox oh the fox. fox sorry the fox yeah fox yeah no 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 wolves in my book no, no wolves no wolves uh, the fox yeah a bit of a spoiler alert but you know hey ho. Uh, yeah, I, I like it. And you, you, what you do is you have, it, it, it's, it's, you know, governments love doing, using proxies, you know, because if you want to do something nasty, you, you don't do it yourself. <laughs> oh, 
No, you have someone else do it. You know, you don't like another country. You know, you don't want to have fight a war with them. That'd be crazy. No, get a proxy to do it for you. Then you can just destroy someone else, the other's country, um, you know, in a way to try and poke a finger in the eye of the nation that you're actually having it against. So I, I like, you know, Mr. Fox spelled double F-O-X-E, you know, ludicrous affectation. Um, and yeah, he's immensely unpleasant sort of character, but quite charming with it as well, because I think foxes are like that. Um, someone, somebody once said of a fox, it's, um, it's a dog hardware running cat software, which I actually really liked, and I, I wish I'd used it in the, in the book, I don't think I did. Um, but yeah, it's a proxy. But, um, you know, later on, perhaps another spoiler alert in the book, we discover that, um, that, yeah, once we got rid of the rabbits, I don't think the foxes are going to really be around much longer you know uh, and and that's not just not towards only foxes but also towards humans as well you know if you have someone do your dirty work you're probably going to get rid of them at the end because they can just remind you how shitty you are and we've seen this happen and it happens in a global scale happens on a you know mac macro scale so there's a, a lot of stuff going on but yeah mr fox he's a great he's a great yeah it's a great character really good baddie really good baddie you even include a little moment uh, in Australia in your book as well towards the end. I won't yeah. ruin anything for anybody, but there is a certain sheep in Goulburn that gets a bit of a run. Yeah, yeah. It was quite nice because I, I was actually um, uh, I was actually in Goulburn. I mean, this is, you know, actually this is really good, like a little sort of little sort of uh, repeat on that thing we were saying about locations. And I just happened to be in, in Goulburn, Goulburn. Goulburn, yeah. Um, and there's this huge, I mean, as you drive in off the, the highway, there's this huge Merino Ram sculptor, sculpture, which is about 70 foot high and about 150 foot long. And it's just magnificent, magnificent sculpture. And, you know, why we don't have one in Wales like that, I have no idea. But we should. We should have a huge, great sheep, you know, on every, every road leading into Wales. <laughs> great. You know, a huge, great sculpture. And um, yeah, and I, and I just when I saw that, I thought, no, I can I can have some fun with this because there's another little extra. We, I, I, that would be a spoiler alert if I if we talked too much about this. But it was um, yeah, that would be actually quite a good thing to do. So I just included it in the book, and uh, my Australian readers were very glad to see that, you know, and they they got a little mention. I think Macquarie Island also gets a mention. I think that's part mm. of the, the Australian uh, territories. Um, so. Yeah, but it um it just fitted. It seemed to work. It just fitted in well, fitted in well to the story. Good. Have you ever wanted to do just a straight up novel? Yeah, I, I oddly enough, um, because we were we had this long meeting with my publishers, and and because I'd been doing what you know I'd had 11, 12 books, and where well, we weren't getting quite the readership you know we, we were hoping we were hoping you know for me to basically conquer the universe with my you know my writery skills but that you know clearly isn't happening and won't happen and I was kind of we had this meeting and I said well what about kind of absurdist light rather than absurdist heavy you know maybe that'll get a bit more people interested and they said yeah well why not give it a whirl and that's what early riser was going to be and I think early on that was one of the problems I had. It was it was a kind of straight, serious book with serious characters, but with a, a kind of absurd premise. But everyone was much less, um, you know, much less absurd. And and as I wrote it, I realised that I just couldn't do it. You know, there had to be something silly going on. There had to be Carmen Miranda and her fruit hat. And and I just I just didn't like it. You know, and and I think 
it's quite important when you're writing is you you can't be writing to get something finished you got to you got to be writing to get something to, to where you like it you have to kind of like your book and like what it's doing and like what it's saying and how it's saying it and I wasn't liking it and I wasn't enjoying it and that just went on for years and years and years and eventually I kind of gave up and just said no to hell with it let's make it really silly and absurd like all the rest but we'll have a kind of slightly you know there's a kind of slightly harder edge to it in the same way it fits in within uh within the sort of constant rabbit kind of thing a sort of shades of gray early rise a constant rabbit they're different books to the mm. to the thursday next and the the nursery crimes they're still absurd but there's a slightly you know more serious edge perhaps to them um yeah and eventually that's that's where i i got to it but it's i i'm not sure i could write a uh, a straight book really to be honest what are you working on at the moment uh, I'm working on Shades of Grey 2. Uh, mm -hmm. This is uh, Shades of Grey is a book uh, wrote, I wrote in 2010, I think. I must be about 10 years ago now. Um, and this is, this is a novel um, set in a sort of future world. It's a post-apocalyptic world, but it's 1500 years after the something that happened. And there's a society which is based on visual colour. So the hierarchy is based on the colours that you can see. Um, and that's it. And you have an Ishihara test. That's those little coloured dots when you're aged uh, 20. And then you're streamed into your um, into where you are in, in society and what you're going to be and what you're going to do. And it was uh, my character was just sort of stumbling around this rather bizarre world. And I was just having fun with it. And uh, I, it, it ended on a bit of a cliffhanger because I wasn't sure how to finish the book. And I thought, well, I'll write a sequel to it. And eventually or straight away if people really like it. And, and it wasn't universally kind of, you know, either critically or no one really bought it. I think people wanted more of the Thursday next or nursery crime at that point. So it didn't sell, so we didn't do a, a sequel, but it's kind of, it's kind of gained a bit of, bit of a following in the intervening years. And more and more people now say, listen, where's Shades of Grey 2? So that's what I'm doing at the moment. So revisiting, um, Eddie and Jane and East Carmine and trying to figure out um, where they go from here. But it's uh, where I am at the moment. Um, I'm about halfway through it. Hopefully I'll be able to get it out for 22, maybe perhaps not July, August now, maybe September. Um, and uh, there might even be a third. I don't think I can answer all the questions in just one book, but it's, it's quite fun. There's a lot going on. Uh, I, didn't, I did myself no favours by all these little open questions uh, which are left hanging in book one what was I up to don't know I have to ask you while you're here is there another Thursday next in the pipeline somewhere yeah yeah there is um so just like the the, the um the great troll war which I wanted to close down the um close down the series uh, so there's uh, four books we're all done and dusted and that's how it's going to live for you know all eternity um and it's all in you know all in one thing and I wanted I want to do the same with Thursday. Uh, I think seven is is a is a horrible number to figure finish on, and it's got to be eight. So the first four books in the Thursday next series actually one big book in four annual instalments. Uh, they all kind of fit together, and I because I I wrote them one after the other, and because of that they, I could do that. And the next three are kind of standalone books in the Thursday next world. Uh, first among sequels being the first in that, and that's basically sets up the rest of them. First among sequels, um, and the the so the eighth TN8 will again be a sort of standalone in the Thursday Next World, and it has you know we've gone on a bit. Thursday must be not my age by now, and yeah, sort of the pulled out of retirement 
um, sort of story. It's all about the dark reading matter uh, because um, bookologists or bibliophiles or whoever it is have calculated that actually of the, uh, of the reading material out there, only like 5% of it is readable and the rest is unreadable in the dark reading matter that we can't get to. And that would be quite exciting. And uh, I think what happens is, um, is uh, sort of unpublished, um, unpublished um, works by, I don't know, famous authors are sort of, uh, Cardinio starts popping up or uh, unpublished plays by Shakespeare. And they can only have come from the dark reading matter. And, and if you can get into the dark reading matter, you know, what else is in there? Because it's it's ideas and things that are in authors' heads when they died, and it's jokes that everyone's forgotten. It's it's oral histories that have been forgotten. It's people's histories. It's everything. There's so much in there, um, and I think that's that's an exciting project. I mean, it really is. That's a, that's an idea that fills me with excitement and possibilities. And uh, the series has been leading up to it. I think in books number six, number seven, there has been reference to the dark reading matter on a couple of occasions. So I've set myself up for it. Um, so yeah, there will definitely be Thursday next eight. And I'll probably be writing that uh, next year if all goes well with um, Shades Ray 2. Maybe you can finally answer that question of who stole all the humor out of the Thomas Hardy novels. Yeah, exactly. Where did it all go and what they were doing with it? Because they used to be the funniest books. That's right, because Jude the Obscure was once, you know, absolutely rip roaring, you know, funny book. And God, now look at it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's I, I like that joke. It's 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 you know, you get kind of you, you make up a joke and you think, oh, that's a really good joke. That And, you know, I think the best of the best could have come up with something, you know, as good as that. And that's that's a nice feeling, you know, because there, there are a lot better writers out there than me. And it was like, um, you know, if um, uh, I read <coughs> uh, the joke, the joke goes, um, uh, yeah, I read um, I read Thomas Thomas Hardy backwards, so it has a happy ending, you know, which which, which is which I think is a good joke. I like that. Yeah, always read it backwards. Good joke. Yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jasper Ford. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles, as read by Kendrick Lamar. Tess of the Jabbervilles, a poor woman, faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlat, and then you join in Vale of Blakewall, Blakewall. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jasper Ford. Let's move on to you as a reader. Do you have a... Okay a gateway book for you like a book that opened the world of literature uh yeah i mean my gateway book was uh, alice in wonderland um i actually i actually remember learning kind of learning to read um with mrs reed actually that was that's quite good actually uh nominative determinism that it's um at its very best uh yeah so i remember sort of learning to read and and then i had you have a choice to read because most books are you when you're reading you're told you know roger red hat or you know adventure in the castle or whatever it is and you're told to go and read it but once you have this kind of uh this you know astonishing sort of gift to be able to read books and understand you know uh prose fiction uh then you have a choice to go and go and find a book and I, the only book i could find in my parents uh library or bookshelf as i should rightly call it was Alice in Wonderland everything else was like really boring you know just sort of about um economics because my dad was an economist um and I remember getting it out 
and reading it and loving it and, and getting it. And that was the thing. That was the exciting thing. I get this. I get that this is a funny joke. You know, it's not laugh out loud funny, but I understand the humor and the warmth and the charm that runs it through it. And the, the non sequiturs that the Cheshire cat speaks in. I got that. I understood that. You know, he, the, the, he comes back and he's, you know, the Cheshire cat goes away and then he comes back. He reappears and he says, did you did you say pig or, or fig? like that and she said I said pig and he goes oh all right then and vanishes again and you go fantastic you know that is like real writing you know real proper writing because that's what people do you know and and I remember loving that and I read it through once and read it twice and you know it's, it's never left me um that wonderful sort of absurdist charmingly absurd absurdist bizarre sort of worlds that you can create I still have that that copy of the book actually I, I swiped it from my parents and I've actually got it uh, myself <laughs> so I've still got it um so that was my gateway book um and then you know my teenage years I kind of went up through uh did a bit of Biggles because uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of aviation um then I was doing a lot of uh, Nicholas Fisk which um not so many people know these days he was kind of used to write um, um science fiction for teenagers which is um, uh, things like um, uh, Trillions, I think he did, which was really good. Space Hostages, which was fantastic. And that was a kind of gateway to things like Chocky, which is the most approachable. John Wyndham, uh, if you're like 14 or mm. switched on 13 year old, that's a really good one to get to. And then you can go to, you know, sort of the Midrich Cuckoos and then do the whole lot. Um, and, and then that and then you're sort of home clear and you can move on to anything you want after that. So that they were my kind of entry. And there was kind of the Moomins as well, which I love also. And they were in there with Nicholas Fisk. So it, it's I think when it comes to reading, it's it's like having a good mix, a good mixture. And I was, um, you know, the Moomins and Nicholas Fisk and Agatha Christie all together is a, a really good mixture. Um, just to keep you kind of not grounded, uh, perhaps, you know, and a bit sort of lively in your in your reading taste. And I read anything that's good. If it's good, I'll read it. I don't care the genre, you know, and you're going to ask me now what I'm reading, aren't you? I was going to ask you, do you have a lot of time to, to read fiction? No, no, I don't. No, I, I've got my, my time is, you know, immensely valuable, you know, and I have huge amounts of things that I have to do, obligations. I have an elderly mother. Uh, who does need a lot of attention these days. Um, um, uh, so there's a lot of care involved in that, which I have to do. Um, so my time is kind of very limited uh, at the moment, but I, you know, I force myself to read books um, that I know I'll be able to fall in love with and like and won't have too much of a problem with. So um, unfortunately, no, I mean, it's one, one thing about being an author. I mean, some, some people I know, some authors are like reading books all the time and they might come from reading you know they're an author who came from reading but I'm not an author who came from reading I'm an author who came from filmmaking and uh, the taking Volkswagen Beetles apart and aviation and photography and I come from all these different things all of which I still adore and which I still love to um, love to do so um, my reading time is limited. You fly planes don't you? I do yes I do that's what I was actually I had to rush back here because I was trying to get my aircraft back in the in the air because it's about you know tons of paperwork before you can actually do an annual permit so I was trying to get that done and I dashed back here to have this meeting now so yeah I have a lovely little airplane built 80 years ago in Kansas and um, she and I still fly around the hills of Wales very beautifully and slowly. How often do you do that? Uh, when I can, again, it's um, I'd like to do more, but um, I 
my time is limited. It's like, oh, well, I read a book, I'll go for a flight. Well, it's raining, so I'll have to go to look after my mum because her roof is leaking. Um, yeah, so um, I do when I can, but I do not do as much as I'd, lo- I'd like to, really, to be honest. Wow. All right, well, in your very limited time, uh, are you reading anything currently or anything you've enjoyed recently? Um, yeah, actually, um, my, my, my wife was down in, um, down in Hay and there are, you know, tons of bookshops there and she forages around the, uh, there's this amazing thing, amazing institution it is now in the Hay bookshop, in, the ha- in Hay on Y, which is called the Honesty Bookshop. And it's all the books that you can't sell, right? All the bookshops can't sell. They just dump it there and you can go through and you can pick out a book for like 50p, put it in the slot and there you've got a book for 50p. And it's just the most beautiful, wonderful, fantastic idea. And, um, you know, and you can actually use it, if you haven't got any money, you can use it as a lending library because you can just borrow a book and then just bring it back, you know, and don't pay any money at all. It doesn't matter. No one would care. You know, they're just books. They're not going to landfill. Please take these books. If you've got some money, put it in the slot. So it's just the most fabulous thing. Anyway, she came back with a book by um, somebody called, uh, I think it was J.S. Carr, and they were in the RAF in, um, in, uh, in about 19, 1920 and were actually uh, posted to Iraq, which was then a, a new country. And that was a very interesting uh, sort of uh, ge- geopolitical uh, sort of eye-opener to what was actually going on um, in Iraq in sort of 1921, 1922, of, of which I don't think the British can be terribly proud, but told uh, in quite a really sort of very, um, very sort of serious uh, way by a pilot who was actually there. And talking about Kurds because the Kurds uh, wanted their own homeland um, in 1922. Well, ever since the partition after the Ottoman collapse, the Ottoman Empire. Um, and uh, well, blow me down if um, if that is not still with us even now. So put straight lines on a map, you're going to have trouble. Um, but that was that's very interesting, and also it's full of aeroplanes and all kinds of um, stuff and things, uh, little things that you did not know. Like there was something called a ghoulie chit. Right now, a ghoulichit is a piece of paper written in uh, written in Arabic, because if you were a downed airman and you fell into the wrong hands, you may have your ghoulies removed. Oh. Uh, so you had a chit which said, if you do not remove, please do not remove this pilot's ghoulies. Um, and if you don't and you bring him back to the to the RAF, there is like, you know, this much in camels or gold coins or something like that. And that happened. That was a thing. Um, by the women and it happened to two pilots while he was out there so it um he said it, may, it kind of made your heart jump if the aircraft engine missed a beat because uh, if you had to force landing there was all potential for unpleasantries uh, mm. awaiting you which kind of ex- kind of you know because to do that to somebody kind of um because it's easy to say ah oh, how barbaric you know oh my god these people are awful and you go well no let's look at it from another how how much would you have to hate someone to want to do that to their representatives and what is the reason that you hate someone that much so it was it's a very very interesting book you know just not only from from the flying point of view but also from um you know geopolitics and things which are still with us today Hmm. are there any authors who you would go straight out to the bookshop and pick up like their new novel um, yeah, good question, really. I mean, this is an interesting one because, uh, and I think I've fallen foul of this as well because um, people, you know, say, oh, I love your Thursday next books. And I go, have you read them all? And you go, well, no, I've read up till number three. And you can really like an author, but not necessarily want to do all their books. And um, Sandy McCall-Smith, you know, is a tremendous author, but I wouldn't 
buy every single one in the series if you saw what i mean i'm kind of okay with two or three you know of the um uh, of his uh, of his series ladies detective yeah ladies yeah. detective and the the other the other one which as i've forgotten now so uh, i i tend to be more eclectic in, in my tastes i tend to someone will say you know this is really good for this reason or i'm really hooked by um, some some something that happens in the book or someone just happens to hand it to me saying, Jasper, you like this. Um, being an author is kind of, it's like working in the film industry, is you 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 don't kind of, you, you read a book and you know you, whether you're in safe hands very quickly because if I can see it being written, it's like if you can see a movie being made, then you, you know it's no good. It's like if you can see an actor acting, we just call it bad acting. But if you can't see an actor acting, then you know you're in safe hands. Same with same with an author. So often I'll throw books away after maybe you know the first page sometimes because I just I can see them writing it and I'm going oh I know what's going on here. But if I can't see them writing it, then I'll just carry on and and yeah and love it. Hopefully, we'll take a break and come back with Jasper's top ten. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota. Welcome back. It's time to hear Jasper's top 10. Oh my goodness, top 10. Then I'm going to give you a real tactic mix and this is off the top of my head here. Okay, so um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's like when you do top 10 movies and, and you go, oh, these are my top 10 and you go like that. And someone goes, yeah, but what about, you know, Harvey? And you go, oh yeah, that's, that's right. So I think um, with the top 10, you can have a top 10, but they're like, you know, there's a hundred books in your top 10 and you just got to, you just got to pull out randomly. So um, uh, I'll, I'll say a, a True Grit, I think is is one of my favourite books, uh, Charles Portis. Yeah, True Grit, Charles Portis. I mean, I adore this book. I mean, I just, I love it so much for so many different reasons. Uh, uh, Matty Ross, the protagonist, if you haven't read the book, you may have seen the movie. The movie is very, very, uh, very, very close to the book. And that's the later movie with Hailey Steinfeld, not the not the earlier one. Um, and and it's it's a tremendous movie. And it's basically they've just filmed the book, you know, um, and the characters and the dialogue and everything. And although, um, you know, everyone says, you know, it's a bit of an, uh, you know, no one did people speak like that where they they didn't contract any any words, you know, doesn't isn't can't, you know, people at one time in the old west speak in this way you know i did not do that i cannot think that you know i i am hurt now and and it's it's not true people have always spoken with contractions but it, it lends even though it's a sort of odd affectation it just lends a certain bizarre otherness to the to the west that, that portis is describing that i think is a mark of absolute you know literary genius and the voice matty ross's voice is a strange mixture of not just the 12 year old speaking, but also the 34 year old narrating how she thinks the 12 year old would have thought at that time. So there's like layers upon layers. And it's it's lovely. And it's just, it's it's a, a story of, of, you know, pure vengeance uh, against, you know, it's a love story uh, because Matty's father, whom she adored, was gunned down for no reason at all. And um, 
and she needs to find vengeance, but she's 12. How can you do it when you're 12? You can't do it. You have to find a proxy and the most, um, you know, the most fearful lawman um, you can find as uh, Rooster Cogburn. It's anyone who hasn't read True Grit has to read True Grit. It's just the most fantastic piece of work. So this this podcast, obviously podcasts never make any money, but this one has just continued to cost me money. So that is on my list of things to buy this week. <laughs> Um, if I look, if I, if I find a copy in the in the charity bookshop, in the in the uh, in, in the free bookshop, you know, but I won't. Um, yeah, it's it's been out a long time. It's been out, uh, you know, about sixty years now. So I'm, I'm sure you can pick up a very cheap copy. But yeah, do please um, have a read. It's yeah, it's a lovely piece of work. Lovely. Even the even the opening. You, as soon as you read the first paragraph, you go, "I am hooked. <laughs> I'm hooked." You know, I'm going to read it. And it's it's the it's the opening lines of the of the, the movie, you know, so it's it's just fabulous. Um, OK, so uh, we're going to have to sort of go off piece now. now I'm going to just run them as they come into my head. Uh, so there's a book um, by a British author named um, Mill Millington. Right. Which is called, I think, Arguments I've Had With My Girlfriend. And it is arguments that he's had with his girlfriend. This was a blog that Mill was writing. Uh, Mill's uh, from Birmingham. And it's a blog he was writing in the early days of blogs. And it was um, immensely funny because he has this um, German girlfriend, now his wife, um, who has the most bizarre arguments with him. And it's, it's about being English and German and the different ways we look at things. And, and he was asked by a publisher to, to put his blog into, into the format of a novel. And he did so with, with tremendous skill. And it's, it's just the most charming, lovely book, I must say. And it's just funny, just silly and funny. And, and he, I think he calls her Agatha. I don't think that's really her name. I, I can't remember the name of his girlfriend. Um, it's just sopped on my head. But anyway, so it's a lovely book. So that's, um, yeah, that's a nice book. Um, there's a, a book by an Australian um, um, author, uh, John Birmingham, uh, which is called he, he Died with a Falafel in His Hand. Again, which is a very, very funny book. Uh, John, John Birmingham, very witty guy. And it's, it's about house sitting. And it's like this one house. And it's all the people who come in and... And, and house sit, a house share with, not house sitting, house sharing. And it's all these people who house share with the protagonist and every single microcosm of human, <laughs> human character ends up in this, in this house share. Um, and eventually someone of course has to die and someone dies with a falafel in their hand. And that's, that's the title of the book. So, um, so that's good. Um, right. So uh, what else can I, what else can I, uh, what else can I write, um, talk about? Um, I'm trying to think of really off kilter, off kilter ones now. Um, uh, 1927 uh, by, by Bryson. Uh, now Bryson's, yes, he is an author that I will go out and buy because I love his wonderful warm sort of charming sort of pouring chocolate in the ears kind of um, way of um, explaining you know quite quite difficult and interesting subjects um i quite often listen to these um a, a small book of no was it a short book of nearly everything i think he did uh, which is a lovely one because all that characters but 1927 it just covers a, a 1927 basically it's the summer of 1927 um the uh, a year in which my my mum was born actually oddly enough um and it's just lovely because it's there's so much about it that is interesting but also so much about it that appertains to the 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 the, the way we live now and gives you a very clear sort of understanding that um that we were like 
we were like the people we are now are the people we are then with fads and you know and fashions and you know being outraged by stories in the news and celebrity and all this kind of thing and, and ludicrous uh, politicians and what they get up to and if you're interested in the birth of musical opera uh, then certainly that's worth reading for that reason alone I think Showboat uh, was the big uh, game changer and I didn't know that uh, so yeah 927 Bill Bryson um, yeah great book to read um, I, I would have to say something, uh, I'd have to pop a Moomin uh, book in here because I adore the Moomins, uh, Tove Janssen, uh, just such warmth, such beauty and warmth and simplicity, you know, it's doing so much with so little and, uh, and Moomin Troll and his friends and Snufkin and Little Mai and um, the Snort Maiden and the Snort Maiden's brother who I can't remember, maybe doesn't have a name, not sure. Um, and the Hemulin and all these characters and the Hattie Fatners um, who are just, it's also fantastically absurd and bizarre and effortless. So it's, um, it's really nice uh, from that point of view. Have you read um, those books to your kids? Yeah. 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 When, you know, they're, they're, a, bit, they're a bit too, a bit too old to read to now, but, um, but when they were smaller, yeah, we did uh, Comet and Moomin Land is always a good one because it's like full of fear and trepidation. And, you know, we have to go to the people who understand things to be able to explain things. And when they get there, they just, um, they're in, in disarray as well and, and everything. It's, it's lovely. It's really nice. Really nice. My eldest daughter is, my eldest yeah. daughter is eight now. So I think I'm yeah. going to. Ah, yeah, 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 absolutely. Her, yeah. Yeah, and um, and you know, I suppose um, uh, my early riser book about humans hibernating uh, was is a very strong nod to to winter Moomin Troll in winter because uh, he wakes up because uh, Moomin Trolls hibernate and uh, and he wakes up and there's no one around and uh, there's a bit of that in uh, early riser. So um, yeah, and there's nods to the Hemulin and the Gronk, of course, one of the the Groak, sorry, uh, the Groak in 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 the Moomin Troll universe is a just such a beautiful, sad but sort of warm character. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely the Moomin Troll there. Um, right, so we'll have to sort of move move uh, swiftly on. Um, I suppose Catch Twenty Two. Uh, Catch Twenty Two is always is always on, is on a lot of people's lists. I know that's just boring. But I, I like books that I can sort of pick up and I can just read a chapter and it's lovely. And, um, oh, what, who wrote it? Remind Joseph me. Heller. Joseph Heller. Yeah, I mean, uh, dear, dear Mr. Heller, um, this was his, I mean, I, I, you know, I hesitate to, to criticise anyone of his, of his ilk, but I, I read other books of his and none of them are a patch on Catch-22. This was done with real, real... Um, this was in him. This this would have to come out. This was in him, and it was not going to go away. And he had to tell it, and he had to tell it like it is. And he 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 told it in a way that is just so wonderfully brilliant because every, every chapter is a character. You know that is the chapter, um, uh, and and then you can find the bit that you really want to read, which is the one I like is so much, and I'll read it again and again because it's so beautiful. Is is Milo Milo Minderbinder explaining how he can buy um, eggs for two cents and sell them for one cent and still make a profit, and it you read it twice and you have no idea, but you just love this just wonderful, ridiculous character. And also this, the way that it, it's told it's, it's for very good reason. It's, it's a, you know, a classic uh, for very good, very good reason. Um, Catch 22. Um, I'll have to move on to something like um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Um, Kurt Vonnegut. This is again, uh, I suppose this is on everyone's list. Is it? Well, maybe blokes perhaps. Um, uh, and, this was again one of my gateway books because I think this was the first sort of um, 
kind of serious science fiction, but not science fiction, perhaps allegorical political book that I wrote that I really got. I would have been in my sort of perhaps mid-teens. Uh, and I, again, I, I really, I really love it. The Trafamadorians. Um, and I think the mind bend, bending way in which you, he was looking at other ways, you know, time, look at, don't look at time in this linear way. Look at it, look at it all in one as the Trafamadorians do. And then you have this idea that it's kind of sort of slightly mind expanding a bit like, you know, in the, in the old days with the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And it's like to, if you're in, if it's 1964 or 1962, you know, that is, that is a mind bending you know, concept, you know, it's really hard to get in mind, your head around. Nowadays, it, uh, you know, my, I told that to my my boys and they went, yeah, but Pingu's igloo is like that. And I went, oh, you're right, isn't it? Yeah. So Pingu lives in a TARDIS, basically, which is, brings me, you know, really humbling moment. But, um, but you know, Kurt Vonnegut, full of, you know, great ideas, um, you know, and the Sirens of Titan, uh, another great one to read, which should be not in science fiction, but it should be in uh, in philosophy. Uh, definitely. Um, uh, another great, um, I think I've actually got a copy. Yeah, I think there's a copy just over there. Um, Tiger, Tiger by Alfred Bester, um, written about 1955. Again, a great piece of science fiction. Um, it's, it doesn't fit in absurd. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's like old sort of golden, golden years of, of science fiction about the ability to jaunt, you know, to teleport and the, and really the political ramifications of being able to move from one place to another you know in in no time at all and where that takes takes you and the opening sequence you know which is all about this guy this like gully foil who is stuck in a tool locker on a uh, on a shattered remains of a, a spacecraft you know orbiting somewhere out near i don't know you know i don't know well jupiter or something like that and there is no way he can live there was no way he can survive he is in the ultimate you know, bear pit in which there is no, there's no possible way of surviving. And then uh, a, a, another spaceship goes past the Volga T and they see him signaling and they move on. And that is the catalyst for him to suddenly realise that, yes, he has to escape from this. And he does. And it's just a fabulous piece of work. I, I loved it. And I reread it actually about four or five years ago and I loved it all the more the second time around. So, um, yeah, um, uh, the US, US title is The Star's My Destination. Um, I suppose um, uh, we've already spoken about um, Alice, in, Alice in Wonderland um, and Through the Looking Glass. Uh, uh, Through the Looking Glass is, uh, is I think, a better book. Um, it's, it, take, it takes the whole Alice thing to a whole new level of understanding. And the, the most beautiful thing I think about the series and Through the Looking Glass in particular is that I, I read Through the Looking Glass because I when I was a kid, when I was like nine, and I enjoyed it, not as much as as um as Alice in Wonderland uh and then I reread it I think when I was about 12 and I went oh there's a bit more here a bit more here and then I read it again when I was like 26 and it was like whoa there's so much more here and the white knight because he speaks in meta languages which again goes back to what we were saying about the wonderful uh, concepts you know conceptual zingers and the the idea that the, the names can have names you know the meta meta language of, of names and there's this long thing all about this uh the white knight explains to alice about what the what the 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 name of the song is called and you go okay so that's that's what the song is no 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 that's just what the name is called and and it's a beautiful beautiful piece of work and he realized then that obviously you know um uh, charles dodge dodgson um uh, Lewis Carroll was, of course, maths and, and logic was very, obviously, very, uh, very big to him. But it's a book that changes with you as you as you grow up. 
And, and I've sort of tried to do that with the Thursday Next series is that you could read it as Knockabout Fun, maybe even The Constant Rabbit, you could as, a, as, a, as perhaps maybe 12, 13, you could read it as Knockabout Fun. And then when you're 25, you could read it again and go, okay, there's, there's actually quite a lot going on here that I hadn't noticed first time around. And I think that's, uh, that's something I've tried to get into my writing and that's something I've got from uh, Through the Looking Glass. Um, uh, where are we? I've got us, uh, John Wyndham, um, Dare the Triffids, uh, John Wyndham, uh, interesting writer, because I think John Wyndham was maybe one of his third or fourth pseudonym and a lot of other stuff he'd been writing, um, you know, is now pretty much lost to us. But in this final hurrah, this, they wrote it, these 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 ones were written at the end of his kind of end of his writing career and his life. Um, he's given us like five or six, you know, absolutely fantastic um, science fiction novels or maybe four or five. Um, which which just just fabulous and the triffids I've always I always loved the most because we we arrive um, we arrive you know the triffids already arrived you know they've been there and you know and they they they're used they're they're farmed and um, and they have their stingers cut off so we're already like five six or wherever already three books into the series when we arrive with the triffids and that's such a wonderful great way of throwing away a fantastic concept um, and it's yeah just great bit of work but um chocky midwich cuckoos all you know absolutely terrific as well um uh we must be nearly at 10 so i will i'll put on um uh not not the not the um uh the douglas adams as the whole lot you know i mean kind of like all of his his works i suppose you know as one huge book um and there's a, there's there's a lot of adams in in my books i feel uh and it's sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously because a lot of the work that he was doing that I would have been aware of growing up would have he was writing for Doctor Who so a lot of the stuff that appeared in Doctor Who was actually a lot of it was Douglas Adams and then he came up with the um uh with the, the Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide and he was kind of really sort of you know putting a lot of ideas maybe that he, that he was having but but I think the great thing about Hitchhikers and all that whole series is that that this shows that you can you can create a fantastic book with just a sort of sense, an effervescent sense of ideas and charm and, and just ideas. You know, this is like imagination run riot, you know, peppered with charm and everything else. You know, if you'd say, you know, what is the plot of, you know, that quadrology or whatever it became and you go, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I, it's about being humans and being humans at the end of the 20th century and, you know, what we're doing and, you know, and, and who I am as, you know, as an author and maybe what we should think about. But, hey, let's have a bit of fun here. And this is weird and it excites me and it probably excites you, too. And, hey, you know, let's have a party. So, you know, you don't have to necessarily have a plot if there's, you know, there's a way of looking at that. There is one, obviously, but it's not a big thing. It's about, you know, zingers, you know. Um, sort of wonderful kind of um, just thinking up fabulous ideas and you know the babel fish you know and, and then taking that idea and instead of saying this is hey there's a babel fish you know isn't that great you know okay he doesn't stop you know he doesn't stop with the babel fish he says okay and the babel fish is now used as an argument um, uh, for or against the existence of God, <laughs> and that's going okay. I'm in really good hands now because he's taken the idea and he's gone. No, no, I'm not stopping here. I'm moving on with it. I'm taking it to another fantastic, beautiful place. And you're with me on this journey, and we're going to do it together. And you and I, you know, understand each other one. And yeah, just fabulous. Went way too early. He had, you know, so many more, you know, brilliant 
brilliant books and appearances and everything in him. Um, does that bring us up to 10? I think it does. I think you're probably up to 11, actually. Oh, okay. okay. I, I was just well, thinking believe, believe... with um, with with uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide, you've got a, um, another commonality with that because, you, you know, you've got your Ford Fiesta and, you know, you've got Ford Prefect and Hitchhikers. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yes. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, when you're a writer, you, of course, you're 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 never writing in a um, in a vacuum. You know, you, you, you don't just learn to be a writer and you're the only writer that's ever been. You're, you're on the shoulders of giants. And that's and every giant that you're on the shoulder of is, of course, on the shoulder of someone beneath them. And what you are actually on is on this huge, long, you know, massively long um, human pyramid, you know, of writers all sort of wobbly and you're right at the top. And you're taking stuff consciously or unconsciously. And I think there's quite a lot of Douglas Adams sort of snuck into my books, both ways, consciously and, and unconsciously. But my, my um, I had, um, there's an adventure, uh, an invention in one of my books by Mycroft Next, who is this sort of mad inventor who comes up with all these bizarre ideas. And he has um, translating carbon paper. Uh, where you just get a carbon, you get the French carbon and you, you write on it in English and then you, underneath it, it, it comes out in French. And if you do lots of them, you can, of course, do it in all different languages. And that was my sort of nod towards the uh, the Babel fish. Uh, my homage, if you like. <laughs> wow, what a great list. Um, mm. Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell everybody where we can find your website and um, find you on Twitter and things like that? Yeah, so I'm quite easy to find. So my website is uh, uh, jasperford.com with the double F-O-R-D-E, the uh, spelling of great affectation. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jasper Ford. Um, uh, again, obviously with a double F. Uh, on Instagram, because uh, I like to take lots of pictures. So that's at Jasper Ford as well. And yeah, all my books, you can find them in the usual places. If you want signed books, then I actually sell them, sell paperbacks um, online. And they're just at, uh, they're at um, cover price. I don't charge anything for freebie postcards and, and signatures and everything if you want those. Um, but yeah, easily found, um, easily bought. Everything's on ebook. Um, if you're If you're listening to this from the States, um, there wasn't any publication for Dragon Slayer 4, but you can get it on ebook and Audible uh, through servers that run through to London. So um, they are available, but um, uh, paper will be an import. So sorry about that. But, um, but all other books you should be able to get without any problem. Jasper, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's been, been good fun. Thanks once again to Jasper Ford. His website is jasperford.com. You can find us on Twitter at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.